0: Hi there, this is Gary Rogowski for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. Welcome to our podcast. Today's podcast is a recording of one of our design open houses. This occurred in June of 2019. These design open house talks are about big ticket items with people from different disciplines. So I've discussed creativity with a poet and a gardener and Inspiration with a photographer and a pianist. Everyone comes to these ideas from a different perspective, and it's fun to play around with these ideas and, uh, and see what happens. This night's topic was intention, and I had the pleasure of discussing this with John Eisenman, a choral master. This evening's uh, Design Open House with John Eisenman and me... Gary Rogowski, director of the Northwest Woodworking Studio. John, I have his bio here. What's your wife's name? Jen. Jen, do you want to do the bio instead of me? All right, okay. Started as the director of choral activities at Grand High School in the fall of 2012 and is finishing his seventh year of teaching. He's an alum of Grand High, graduated in 2006, sang with the choir program for three years, two of which he was a member of the Royal Blues. What are the Royal Blues? They're a chamber choir. Oh, cool. John holds a BA in music education from Knox College, Galesburg, Illinois, and an MA in educational leadership and curriculum design from Concordia University. Aside from his work at Grant, he is an active member of the Northwest Choral Community and has sung and served as president and co-member of the Artistic Consortium for the Portland Symphonic Choir. He has also sung with the Knox College Choir, the Mendelssohn Chorale, and the Nova Singers in Illinois. Yeah. He's not a woodworker. <laughs> Actually, he is a woodworker, I love that. So, Jamie, uh, who teaches with us and now teaches shop class at Grant High School, suggested that John and I get together and, and chat. And we had a great time talking. And decided to come up with an idea for tonight's design open house and um, the idea is intention so I'm going to just do a little intro and then I'll let you take it away Um, from my perspective not from jobs but from my perspective when we design furniture uh, we go through a series of steps in order to get to the end end product and um, At least for this world uh, where we build uh, things that function uh, the design needs to have you know satisfy certain preliminary requirements so you need to be able to sit in the chair you don't just look at the chair you need to be able to actually sit in the chair Uh, or it's a table or it has drawers or whatever whatever the function of the piece is you need to hit those requirements so that's that's number one purpose Um, the joinery will impact the design. You know, you can put... All of these chairs could be put together with pocket screws. And that changes the way they look. It changes the way they hold up. Um, They can be screwed together. They could be put together with wire. Uh, But that changes things. And these are put together with wood joints. And that changes the look of things. So the structure is a part of the design. The important thing for me is intention of design, what, what's the, you've got the function and you know how it's keep being put together, what are you trying to say with this, with this piece what, what are you going to feel like when you see this piece when you walk into a room, and that's intention for me, what's the intent of the piece what am I trying to say, I was thinking about this earlier today and you're going to expound on it because you can and I can't, <laughs> but that's uh, the idea of lyricism wouldn't it be nice if we could be lyrical with our furniture? It's hard to do, but uh, that's, you know, that's, a, that's an idea, an intention. What do I want to do with this piece when you see it? Um, and uh, after that intention, and you're thinking about that, comes the details of the piece, whether it's brown or red or white or brown or brown or, brown or browner. <laughs> that's what workers tend to, <laughs> tend to design their stuff. Uh, and then the plan. So those are the five aspects that, come together for for me to put a design together but for for me intention is is the most important thing with that what do you want to talk about
1: (laughs) well intention (laughs) I, I intend to talk about intention excellent um well first Gary thank you for having me and inviting me to be a part of this uh gathering this evening it's really exciting I've uh I really enjoyed our preliminary conversation and uh, I found your book really inspiring, um, in terms of the way I approach my work as a choral director and an educator. Um, I kind of separate those two things. Um, being an educator is one thing because it involves, um, at least in my case, an institution and a lot of licensures and things like that. But then also what am I educating? I am a choral director and I think that's a skill set that I can take and, um, to other mediums, right? Not just within the school. Um, but anyway, um, back to intention. For me, um, intention often starts with emotion. Mm. Um, and it, how I'm feeling um, indicates or um, prescribes where I'm going to go with a specific programming choice, with a specific way I'm going to shape a phrase. Um, so I'm very conscious of the things that are going on in my life, um, how I'm feeling about certain um, you know, global aspects, my personal relationships, my relationships with my students. And from there, that kind of drives what I do and um, the types of pieces I program and the types of emotions that I bring into the classroom. Hmm. Um, and that, does that sound very selfish? Absolutely. But um, it's, that's art, right? Um, right. It, it has to start with the person who's doing it. Um, and as we discussed earlier, you know, I, the interesting thing about the medium that I work in is I work in the medium of of humans, right, and their voices. So, um, and in a school, they happen to be children, and I don't always get to pick exactly what I want to work with, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> the fellow educators in the room are laughing, right? Um, I don't have the luxury to always go out and say well, I'm going to go and select this type of voice, and it's going to be able to do all of these things. Um, But in terms of what you intend to do, I think is still the same. Mm -hmm. Um, No matter what you're working with, what you intend to do is the same, whether you intend to bring joy, or you intend to bring reflection, or sadness, or celebrate something. And to me, you talked about different steps in the process. And for me, there are a number of steps, too. And I don't know if I could number them off as eloquently as you did. But the first thing when it comes to programming music, um, that's that's step one. Is Well, step one, really, before that would be knowing what ensemble you have. Right. So um, let's just say, for instance, I'll, I'll talk about my, my chamber choir, the Royal Blues. They're a very accomplished young group of high school students. So there, I know I know exactly how deep I can go. I know the level of of their abilities. And so from there I have to decide what type of music am I going to pick for them? What are they going to be able to handle? What are they going how what challenges are they going to go through in order to get that? And then also what do I want them to learn from that? But then the last piece is what do I want them to bring to an audience? So it's again it's it's that me as a teacher I have to intend to teach them something. I need them to get something out of that and then I need them to be able to take my intention and interpret it in live time and sell it to an audience, and hopefully that comes across. Right. So there's a lot of steps, and then their emotions and their state of being get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in many times, uh, in really good ways, but sometimes not in good ways. When you're trying to have a rehearsal at nine in the morning on a Tuesday, and you're talking about, um, you know, say you're you're singing uh, um, an African American spiritual, and you're talking about one of the greatest struggles known in human history and you want to bring that 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 gravity and that weight Mm -hmm. and that understanding and they're just like man it's 9 a.m on a tuesday and i'm in high school i have and you can't always get there right it's fascinating to me i hope to
0: to the furniture makers in the room how much john is talking about emotion and how little we think about emotion when we how little i think about emotion when i'm designing a piece of furniture uh, I mean, emotion comes into it, but not because of <laughs> what I'm designing. It's <laughs> oftentimes something else has gone on.
1: So that's really different. I mean, that human element is powerful. But you talked about how to, how does a piece of furniture make you feel? What is what do you want right. you want it to inspire? Something you mentioned lyricism, and and I, I mean, I think about that in the the items of furniture and uh, and that I. You know, have in my house and the types of things I'm drawn to. They give me certain feelings. They are oftentimes a sense of nostalgia or they remind me of a certain time or a certain place and, and those convey emotions and therefore I think that there is a lot of emotion that goes into the intent behind a piece of furniture. Whether you intended it to be there or not, I don't know, <laughs> but it has that effect on people.
0: Well, I think that's the important point to make to the, to the nascent designers out there, you new designers out there, is that there is a purpose and an intention. And then if you think about that, that piece can have more impact. If you're just building the stuff, hoping that it, that it works, well, it may, it may not. It's an important part of, of delivering the goods. When you build a piece from, from a set of plans, someone else's stuff, it comes out ho- however they chose. To design the piece but when you're really thinking about a piece um, I'm thinking about your one of your round was that, that round cabinet it had a real impact uh, that shape and that form so that's that's important but much less of the immediate emotional stuff day-to-day stuff for us
1: it's a fun job though Um, because music is a part of everybody's life whether we like to admit it or not we're surrounded by it because of recorded music we're surrounded by it you can't even walk into a grocery store without hearing something and that music is going to make you feel a certain way Um, and there's a lot and music is designed to make you feel that way I, I think because it comes well at least in my opinion true music or genuine music actually was created with an intent other than just to make money there are things that I, I will admit, there are songs that I have programmed that I go, well, this is a gimme, this is a throwaway, it's for the spring concert, and everybody's going to have a lot of fun with it, and I don't, I'm not going to have to work very hard at it, and the audience is going to say, great, and done. Right. Just put it, put it up, make it happen, and get rid of it, and move on.
0: Is the ephemeral quality of music limiting, or is it freeing,
1: or That's a tough question. Yeah. Music is a time-based art, so it only exists for the moment that it's being produced. And I'm not talking about recorded music. I'm talking about live human interaction, right? Like uh, me singing to you or playing an instrument to you is a moment in time that can never actually come back. However, nine times out of ten, what I'm performing, at least in the choral world, was written by someone else Mm -hmm. with their own intention. And sometimes it happened 500 years ago. And so we have records of these scores. I'm a huge fan of Renaissance music um, and early music. And I program a lot of it. And you'd be surprised how, how easy it is to get high school kids to really, really dig Catholic church music from 1450. <laughs> like, it's really, it's probably easier to, than it is to get all of you guys to dig it. So in that, I think that, you know, like you said, that the chair just sits there for 100 years. But what I'm dealing with kind of is more like, it's like I'm inheriting the plans. Right. And now I get to go, okay, I've got someone else's plans. Here's the notes. Here's the words. Here's the structure. And I kind of have an idea of the setting of where that's going to be. How do I make that important and relevant and connect it to today? Mm -hmm. So I think maybe as a furniture maker, you're wondering, how do I make what I'm building today have meaning beyond the function of it today? Mm -hmm. How does it inspire someone, say, 100 years from now or 200 years from now? How does someone look at my plans and go, Ah, uh, yes, I want that. Well, I think in the in the mastery program at least we have
0: uh, we built nine pieces. they build nine pieces uh, over a two year stretch. So I choose the piece, build a chair that's not a rocking chair, build a chair, and their interpretation of that idea is is some of these new new chairs today that you see. so there is that interpretation, mm-hmm. and their intention shows so music. Moves us very much so, and, and yet it's mathematical
1: often. Yeah,
0: um, I wish Gordon were here. I have one of my students, uh, wrote this novel and he referenced a Schubert Arbeg
1: piece, okay,
0: piano piece, okay, not Arbeg. Anyway, it was a, a, an anagram uh, of, of some friend of his first notes, I guess, A, B, E, and G. Oh, sure, yeah. A-B-E-G-G uh, were the first four lines. Very cool. Yeah.
1: So um, there's all sorts of little tricks and hints hidden in throughout classical music history. And uh, and I think I, that's one of my favorite parts is discovering things like that. I think that one of the most obvious ones, which may, may, may not be obvious to non-classical music lovers, but um, the, the Bach B minor mass, which is considered to be the greatest composition in Western music history. If you don't know what a mass is, a mass is essentially... The service—it's uh, the Catholic service—and although Bach was Lutheran, he wrote a mass at the end of his life um, because he felt that it was important, um, and it was never performed while he was alive. He, because um, mm. he, you know, he was Protestant. that's right after the Reformation. Uh-huh. But anyway, to cut to the chase, at exactly two-thirds of the way through this entire two and a half-hour work at exactly the the golden mean, I'm sure you talk about the golden mean, if (laughs) you think about the golden mean from the moment that it starts to the moment that it ends, at literally exactly that point is when the resurrection of Christ happens. Get out of here. No, no, I'm kidding you not. And then right before that is when the crucifixion of Christ happens and boxed notes actually form crosses on the page. So if if you tie them all together, you literally are looking at the crucifixion of Christ and then at the golden mean, the most important moment in the whole thing, is the Et Resurrectsit. And, I mean, that stuff is really, really cool. Yeah, that, yeah. Is,
0: that is very cool. There's a, there's a wonderful book, Girdle, Escher, and Bach. It's a difficult read, but <laughs> the, the, the part on Bach was really fun. All right. Yeah, it's a really fun fun read. I was thinking about, but how certain notes make us feel one way or the other. Oh, yeah. And major chords and minor chords, whatever the hell those are, make us feel one way or the other. And wouldn't it be cool if we could do that with furniture? If we could think of what's a major chord in a, in a design, what's a minor chord in a design? I have no idea. I mean, I'm just thinking about that.
1: I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that idea, too, is how do you make a piece of furniture, say, have a represent a tonality? Uh-huh. Um, and I, I don't know how you do that. I would tell you right now, if I were looking at these two pieces of furniture... The tall black one is definitely in a minor key, but it's in, for me, it would be in a sharp minor key. I, I was actually quite, I'm not kidding you, I was literally about to say F sharp minor. I, I really was. Uh, this this chair here um, could be a little more ambiguous, but I see that in a flat key, and I think that has to do with some of the the more earthy dullen tones that are in that, um, and the rounded edges uh, lead me to a flat key, and I don't necessarily think it has to be minor, But it's definitely one with more flats. It's probably something like E flat or D flat, which has a warmer tone. Could Um, someone hum that, please, for me? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty interesting. Mm, That's probably. Now you're going to go check that on the podcast. His pitch is awful. He's a singing teacher. No, no,
0: not at all. (laughs) You're the only one who could sing it. Anyway. No, I just think it's fun to consider that from just such an out of left field perspective, thinking about major or minor, uh, but th- it makes a difference in music,
1: but right? Also, you just think, I think you could think about dynamics. You would think about... Where music, is the, what do you mean by dynamics? Okay, dynamics meaning relative, loud, or soft. Okay. okay so in, in music, dynamics are considered basically loud, is called forte, and and piano is called soft, and there's relatives all within those uh-huh. um, gradients. However, I mean, you can look at a piece of artwork, or, or a piece of furniture for that matter, and say, man, that is a very loud piece. Right. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Or you can say something is very soft, or um, it's 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 dulcet, right? Or it's mm-hmm. sweet. Um, so I think that those things can be applied very, you know, liberally to furniture design and to the way we interact with objects. And then to tie that back into intention, um, this is something I talk to my students about constantly: is when you're looking at a score, oftentimes, especially if it's a modern composition, there will be Dynamic markings in the score saying it's this is supposed to be quiet and then this is supposed to be it's a crescendo. It's getting louder and then and things like that. And if we're lucky as a high school student, they actually perform those dynamics. That's great. But to me, dynamics are all about intention. Why is the music getting louder there? Why is it getting soft? Why is it speeding up? Why is it slowing down? What does the text tell us in vocal music, which I do? And then what does the composer intend there? And when you get to the heart of the intention, then you don't even really need those dynamic markings. I often find dynamic markings to be really doing somewhat of a disservice mm. to the true artistry of interpreting a score. Because if the intent by the composer is there, then that's communicated. It's, it's obvious. Hopefully. And then you know how to interact with that. Are you a composer? I am not. I tried my <laughs> hand at it. In I just college? want to point
0: out that a composer might disagree with you.
1: Possibly. I, I know a few composers, <laughs> and I've actually we, we are doing a piece this year that was per, uh, composed for one of my choirs uh-huh. by a local right. composer, which was uh-huh. really fun, mm-hmm. and having her come and work with the kids. But mm-hmm. getting to workshop that and kind of go, hey, I'm actually going to do this in your piece there because I think that's appropriate. And for them to go, that's what I was looking for, uh-huh. you know, or no, that's going to go faster. <laughs> and you're like, okay, <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. Yeah. Um, um, no, I've tried my hand at composing, but yeah. I've found that I'm, I'm much more adept at interpreting and, um, and shall I say, orchestrating. Mm-hmm. Um, give me something to work with. Give me a, a, a bare bones, and I can flush it out, and I can get it there. Mm-hmm. But what you do, the idea of all of you students in the room of going, well, I have to build a chair. I have an archetypal image of what a chair is in my mind, but that's about as much as you're going to be given. That's terrifying to me.
0: Well, it's terrifying to do that as well, but it's a a fun project because I hope it was fun because there are so many requirements that need to be satisfied for it to work. Absolutely. Which is more similar to music than most of the stuff we we do. You know, building boxes is not terribly inventive. It doesn't have to be boring, but it's not always inventive. But A a chair has to work on, on three different levels, and it has to be pretty enough alluring enough that you want to sit in it mm-hmm. and then when you sit in it it has to feel good and then it has to last so those are the three basic requirements and it's hard to pull them all off and usually we don't have to usually we just have to do two it has to be built well enough so that the furniture mover can't damage it when they drop it because <laughs> most of the time it just sits there right it's not doing it it just sits there um, but that's just like
1: music a piece of music has to be alluring enough. That it draws me in that I want to engage with it emotionally. Mm-hmm. And then it has to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. It has to be something that I can do and it feels good to do in order to put in the work. Mm-hmm. And it also has to be able to last. So longevity. Mm-hmm. So if, if a piece is,
0: is great for a year, mm-hmm. is that great art?
1: No. Piece of music. Well, okay, this is the, uh, that's a big can of worms. I can go two ways on this, and I'm going to screw myself either way. All righty. Um, you know. I look forward to this. Um <laughs> <laughs> Well, because you're going you're to box around. Um, again, I think this goes with the intention. If you're intending something to, if you're intending to create something that is going to be impactful in that moment and be relative just to the people that you are interacting with on that moment, and then you know that it's going to be gone, then that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But if you are really intending for something to last and have an audience and be rediscovered and find new love, then then that's a completely different kind of composition in my mind. You don't think they, it, some, that a piece of music can do both? Some can, mm-hmm. but um, I think about like, graduation music. We're coming up on that, that that time of year, right? So, you know, it's like, oh, what what's the song we're going to play at our graduation that's going to make us all really, really excited? Well, it's going to be something that's modern. It's something that you know. It's going to be relative. It's going to be something that is really important to you right now. But when you go back and watch that graduation video in 25 years, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that song. And you're going to sing along with the first verse and maybe the first chorus, but by the time the second verse comes around, you're like, yeah, I don't really care. Although the classic rock stations just never give up. No, they don't. But then again, there are some pieces of music that that transcend mm-hmm. and for different reasons. And honestly, in my experience in being in vocal music, oftentimes those pieces are religious in nature. Over eighty percent of the choral canon is is, you know, religious, specifically mm-hmm. you know, Christian, Judeo Christian. But those pieces were written with such gravitas, mm-hmm. as it were that they last. We've already mentioned Bach and Schubert in you know 25 minutes here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reason those names stick around.
0: Yeah, I wonder about art in the capital A form. Can art be made without intention? Hmm. Can you just throw stuff at a, at a canvas? and uh... Come on in, we got room. Come on up front. I got two chairs up front to save them for you.
1: <laughs> They're good-looking chairs, too
0: yeah no come on up come on up so can art can art be unintentional i don't know and so that idea i was i was thinking about can unintentional work so random work deliver the same kind of goods so and i think about uh scat singing or improvisation in jazz okay okay and and yet you go well hell yes you know charlie parker did stuff that was amazing
1: um, so. I would I would not say that that's entirely random, though. It could be. Could improvisation, be right. at least good improvisation, is highly practiced. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> These people who are, I mean, they, it's not just like, well, today I'm going to go, da ba doo da da squee doo doo right? Like, that sounded horrible. That's because I don't practice, like, I don't practice scat. It's definitely in the moment. Mm-hmm. It's at that, it, it's seemingly random, but mm-hmm. there's, there's practice and... Honing of skills that go into that, mm-hmm. um, for sure. I think, though, to your point, though, that there are often, there are times when a piece of random art or if something is creative randomly once in a while can have an impact. But then I don't think that it had an intent.
0: Yeah, maybe not.
1: You never know what's going to impact someone. Right. You never you never know what you say or what you do or what you create is going to make. You don't know how that's going to make someone feel. You can guess at it, but in the end, you're really kind of shooting mostly blind so you never know what you're gonna you know you might make something and go like well eh, I, I didn't try that hard and eh, well there it is and someone might come across it and go that's happened Gary how did you do that and yep. you're like it's happened I don't know <laughs> you know
0: well I yeah it has happened where people have commented on a piece that I just think is not very good and yet it impacts them so that you get you get lucky sometimes But the uh, idea of of longevity is one that I think, I mean, you think about where we are now in terms of a culture and what's current in terms of design, and that's the uh, modernism, capital M, modernism. I.M. Pei died today. Um, I looked up his six, you know, six best buildings. anyway. I didn't know most of them, but did like them. So the, the, the pyramid in the Louvre, the center of the Louvre, oh, that's, right. that's That's IMP. If, as a designer, you don't have the intention of lasting more than a generation, well, it seems like wasted, wasted effort to me. It seems like a, a, a real opportunity that you have to make an impact uh, for, you know, a, a good long period of time. But how do you do that? That's... That's really the that's really the hard thing is how do you create stuff that resonates generation to generation? I mean, in my mind, you have to hit those, those same themes, the same ones that Bach yeah. was thinking about.
1: Right. right. I I, I, I I'm, I'm riffing off you here. I think I think you have to. I think you have to look backwards sometimes, and you have to look at what's worked in the past. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's yeah. like like. To, to think that you can design something brand new is absolutely foolish, in my mind. I what think. he said. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, and especially in the world of music, that's why we ended up with atonal music like Schoenberg back in the early 20th century. Yeah, I know. Most people don't like it, but that's because composers started going, there's literally nothing I can do that's new. Yeah. And if everything has to be new in order to be appealing, then this is the only thing that's left. And so now we've just given up and it's like, just write what you like and call it good. Uh, no, I, th- I think to 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 create something that is has longevity. I think you really d- you have to look back and you have to look at what you are influenced by now and what works. Like, and then don't go completely off script, because if it worked in the past, it's probably going to work in the future still. And so you're really just you're carrying that that sensibility forward, mm-hmm. as in like so in terms of a chair. You look at the what types of chairs really have spoken to you and have continuously spoken to people throughout hopefully a generation or more, and then you're just doing your own iteration on that to shepherd it into the next right It's not changing the boat, shifting it a bit i don't know I, I don't, think about that how I do with with pieces it's my responsibility to shepherd these great works of art into the next generation mm-hmm. as an educator
0: well it's it's of huge importance for designers to recognize that <clears throat> they're not going to come up with anything new. It's been done. And struggling with that burden of originality is just is I think it's a waste of time. So how do you how do you become a good designer? You find good sources to steal from. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the problem I have is when when people do exact copies no. oh, yes. and Definitely. then and then put their name on it. Yeah, uh, I think it was Matisse who was complaining to some artist friends. Matisse, the painter, was complaining to some artist friends about you know the old masters and how boring they were and all that and then went off to the Louvre to study them. <laughs> because that's what you do. Yeah. Because that research and development part of the design process is really important. Mm-hmm. Figuring out what did work or what works for you if you respond to something, why are you responding to it instead of just saying, oh, I don't know what I like. Well, you got to think about it. You got to think about what, what you like and then why do you like it and then how you can steal from that
1: reverently. It's reverent. Good design is reverent theft. That's what I call it. I, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, It's hard to, since I'm not a composer, since I'm, I'm since I'm a, dire- a choral director, I'm an interpreter of, of mm-hmm. music and then, mm-hmm. right, um, it's, it's hard to go back and see how people did stuff before there was recording involved, mm-hmm. right? So if I'm programming something um, by, say, William Byrd or Thomas Tallis, we don't have recordings of what those choirs sounded like. We have we have written inscriptions, and uh-huh. we have ideas and treatise, uh, treatises on music that uh-huh. talk about how things sounded, but we really have no idea the t- concretely. Can I ask a question? Please. Do you think voices have changed? Yes, they have, in fact. Yeah. Uh, they have they have a lot. In fact, the uh, most of, many of us don't sing in tune anymore, and that's because we rely on recorded music to provide our musical entertainment. If you go back not even hundred years, uh, you didn't hear music unless people played it. Right. Right. And then you you say you go back. I mean, that's a a stunning concept for most of us to think about. To think about the fact that before the Industrial Revolution, life was incredibly quiet. I mean, really, there was no freeway noise, there's no airplanes, there's no cell phones, there's no, There's no recorded music anywhere. All you hear is the wind, the trees, whatever animals you're around, and whatever people you happen to be around. Mm-hmm. So life was very, very quiet. So that's why music became so important, really, because it was a way of bringing people together and making some noise to shake things up a bit. Um, so inherently, people were better musicians, in, in many cases, or people were involved in it much more. But specifically to how voices have changed... And this plays into our own culture. Voices have have gotten lower, and especially, well, actually, now also in the female voice, but um, the male voice specifically has dropped in pitch due to societal norms of what it means to be a man. If you have a low speaking voice, you command authority. Hmm. It 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 has this very masculine quality to it that we ascribe to, right? And, you know, oh, a boy becomes a man when his voice drops and things right. like that, right? right. Well. That's just ridiculous, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I have a relatively higher pitched speaking voice now, but I did that by choice. I worked at it to to bring it up into what would be historically a more accurate level of, of the dynamic it's not dynamic uh, pitch register of speaking.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I encourage my students to do that same thing. And you can you can hear it in, in female voices today too. You hear that that vocal fry that like uh I don't know, uh that sound right there. Right. That's damaging to the vocal cords and it's an in, it's an unnatural way of speaking. So, yeah, we have a lot, like, things have changed. Uh Our instruments have changed. Not irrevocably, but, Uh so that's part of it. Yeah. Um, Again, to, to kind of go back to, like, when you're talking about, you know, Matisse going and studying the great masters, I go and I study scores of the great composers, and I read about, you know, I study and do research about how these pieces would be performed, where they were performed for, who, what the performing forces were, but then in terms of actually hearing it, I can only go back 80 years mm-hmm. at most. And even then, most people weren't, we weren't singing old music. And the recording quality was garbage. Right. So really, it's, it's kind of a rebirth right now going on.
0: Well, we have uh, pieces that become iconic furniture pieces, for better and for worse. And speaking of chairs, many of them are completely uncomfortable. But strike such a pose that they become important you know, in, our, in
1: our canon. The balance between form and function is upset. <laughs> it's hard to say.
0: I mean, there are, there are some designs that seem to work and just seem to work. So the, the Danish, Danish modern chairs, the Hans, Hans Wagner stuff, uh, always seems to be
1: current. So when, um, you're, when you're teaching your classes and you're infor- instructing your students, do you em- ask them to emphasize the form or the function?
0: Oh, form over function. The function has to be, that's the first requirement. So when we write a design brief, the first thing you have to do is make sure that the piece is going to do what it's supposed to do. Whatever its, it's job in life, it's got to do that. It has to do that. Okay. But that's not the overriding concern. And the function, form does not follow function. Form is its, own, is its own beast. I'm a big fan of a guy named Henry Petrosky. All of his books are about failure. He's written a dozen books, and they're about failure. And he says, the only way you get to learn anything is by failing Form follows failure is what he says. He's an engineer. He's a civil engineer, and so he's got a particular approach to it. But it's, huh? He wrote a book about bridges. And uh, what he said about bridges is that every thirty years, one one falls down, and all the all the uh, bridge engineers go, "Oh my God, who knew?" Right? One just fell down, what? It was in San Diego or L.A.? They just put it up and it fell down like a week later. This was last year sometime. There was a bridge in Minnesota about 30 years ago that fell down. They don't know how or why things fall. We don't know why. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, and that's, that's how they learn. Unfortunately, lives are lost. Yeah, there's a lot of that. And in the Nature and Aesthetics of Design, the David Pye book, he's talking about the same thing. Planes shouldn't fall out of the air. They shouldn't. But when they do, then you have to figure out what has happened, what has occurred, and make sure it doesn't occur again. But that f- the failure aspect of it, I think, is huge. And when you're designing a chair, how many failures before you came up with a design? How many? Dozens. One, one hopes. One hopes. If you're not failing at design, you're not designing. That's how it works here. You've got to be, you know, if that doesn't work, toss that, try another Try another version.
1: Well, I, as a teacher, and for the fellow educators in the room, that we we fail every day. Yeah, about once every five minutes. Sometimes <laughs> it feels like you know, um, failure is the only way that you learn how to do it. The unfortunate thing is, when you're failing as a teacher, you're screwing up with the lives of kids too. You know, yeah. but hopefully they hopefully they're learning from that process too. And you know what what I do on a daily basis is. Constant interaction and formative assessment, so mm-hmm. it's it's that I- immediate feedback of of okay, do this that didn't work try it like this, okay, do that, nope, nope, try that, modify that oh now you got it, okay, and now you forgot to do it. you know what I mean it's just it's this constant manipulation mm-hmm. um, of the same thing until you get it uh, never never right it's rarely ever right the way you hear it, the way you want it to sound, right, but you get it. Yeah. To, and I'm sure that happens in furniture, too. Well, yeah. the voice is, is the tool. Right. And that's what I'm thinking about, tools.
0: And uh, handling tools takes so much practice. And then I demonstrate something, and they go, oh, jeez. Make it look easy. That's because I've made all those mistakes so many damn times and done it wrong so many times.
1: Well, that's, yeah. That's, and not this, getting the results I want. Same with me. I look at my tenors, and I'm like, guys, this, oh, don't make it sound like that. And they're like, ah. Oh. I'm like, no, no, like this, oh And they're like, Mr. Eisman, yeah. I'm like, well, I'm twice your age. It's okay. You'll get there, but I want you to know what you're going for. Too many people think that because they've decided to adopt a new
0: area of interest that I've given it a weekend. Oh, that should be enough time, right? I've given, yeah. it, I've given it a year. I've given it two years, five years. That should be enough time. I should be good. No. No. It takes much longer than that to be really good at it. I had a student today thank me for taking taking up my life with this one study. Anyway, but that's, it takes that sort of commitment because the incredible stuff that furniture makers are able to do or that singers are able to do comes after just so much practice. There's no shortcut. And that's what everyone wants
1: today is shortcuts. And uh- I mean I've been directing choirs for 7 years now and I'm I'm still just a baby. I mean really, I'm I I'm, I'm such a baby in my field. I have so much more to learn and so many different skills to understand. You know, just this past uh, December I had my first opportunity to conduct a chorus and an orchestra at the same time and I was terrified. Yeah. I mean, working with voices that's one thing. Then working with adult voices that's another thing. But then having to work with instrumentalists oh, yeah. who have all sorts of different needs and requirements, it's mm-hmm. It was terror. It was fun, but it was terrifying. And I have, you know, I have so much more to get there. And the only way to get there is to just keep doing it and to not second guess myself. Although you do, you mm-hmm. yeah, know, that's, that's part inevitable. of the process. But
0: yeah, that's inevitable. But
1: if I know what I'm striving for is true, and if it's if what I'm working towards, I believe mm-hmm. is something of value, then it's okay if I don't get it right the first or fiftieth time. You're still working towards it.
0: Well, that's where the intention thing comes back into play. If you have some idea of where you want to get, and you don't get there, you've just learned a hell of a lot. Yeah. Uh, Mark Azevedo, so, those of you who know him, is a scientist. He's a botanist. And he says, when you perform an experiment and don't get the results you were hoping for, that's a good experiment. Because you didn't. it just proved that this method doesn't work. Well, that's good. You can get rid of it and keep searching for the one that, that works. And so it's valuable to go through that whole process but with intention in mind you know i know where i want to get i didn't get there that's a huge part of the of the design process is knowing this is where i want to get and for the for the new designers you know you say well this is what i want my piece to be like you know what good looks like <laughs> but how do you get to good right well you got to keep trying and i think that the more you can build the more mistakes you make the more you can say oh not going to do that again. i not going to make that mistake again. And that's, that's a huge thing. That's, that's when you start to develop a vocabulary and that's what we absolutely. A question came from the audience. What are some of the things that affect the design of yours? Well, rhythm. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's a really important one for me. Negative space.
1: Uh, I would, I would
0: consider that silence. Tempo. I, it, it really does start with form for me, though, and that goes to proportion. See, so, and
1: that's where I think that we differ mm-hmm. is is because because what I'm when I'm working with the form has already been decided upon, mm-hmm. and so where I'm come I come at it from intent is is from that emotional standpoint.
0: Well, I just thought it was great your, the the example of Bach's B minor mass and the
1: golden yeah golden mean being
0: you know laid over that whole thing, and that's what you can do with. With furniture with is deal deal with that form, and I think that's our, that's our starting point, and I think for a composer it would be as well
1: absolutely right I mean in a composing <clears throat> standpoint, I mean from when I when, from my composing days, y- you have a form that you're composing in you have limitations that are given to you. Right. It was the really abstract ones that I really struggled with, but mm-hmm. when I knew I had to write a nocturne, that was fine right uh, and and I always found that my best compositions and the ones that I still go back and listen to and or sometimes have my students run through, um, were the ones where I gave myself a set of limitations. Right. And I said, this is what I'm working with, this is the medium I'm working in, I'm only going to do these types of things, I'm only going to make these choices, and when I get really, really excited to go outside that box, I'm going to hold myself back from that. Because I want to see how far I can push the boundaries of just this. It's super important. This item. Yeah. Because otherwise it gets too scatterbrained. Mm-hmm. and. Again, I, I will full, full disclosure that's why I don't like romantic music um, as much because I find that it just follows the whims of the composer and it it's, it's whatever they're feeling at that moment and that's great, but I might not be feeling that. So I, I prefer music that has a little bit more structure and inherent cohesion in that because mm-hmm. there's a box to operate in. There's enormous freedom in limitations
0: absolutely so things can you can within a certain box that you're decided to work within there's there's more there's more freedom inside that box for well, some paradoxical reason
1: i believe that fully and i mean in, in some ways the box that i work in is high school students yeah you know and, and like i said at the top of this whole thing they the kids can only go so far and so i need to know exactly how far i can push them and then operate at that level and realize i can get things out of a piece of music that no professional adult choir can because I have high school kids do it. Right. I think about some of the pieces that we've done that are incredibly impactful emotionally to audience members. But if it's sung perfectly by a professional choir of adults, you're like, yeah, that was really, really nice. But to see kids rallying to do that, and does it sound as crisp and clean and is everything as perfect? No, it's not. But there's something else there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really powerful. I can get away with a lot more because I have high school kids doing things rather than adults. Uh
0: I had a job one time uh, where a client came Uh to me and said, I want you to make something for my husband. I said, great. What what does he want? "Uh, It's going to be a surprise. Do whatever you want. I ran from that job. I didn't do it. I didn't want to do it. There's just no way of of pleasing a client like that because you just don't know. And it was a terrifying thought, too. I could do whatever I wanted. Well... Whatever I want may not be what the client wants. So, uh.
1: Well, and that, that, I mean, to tie that back to intent, that's a really interesting thing. Um, and not that I want to go down this rabbit hole totally, but we, we talk about intent versus impact a lot in education. And what you intend to do is not always the impact that it well, has yeah. on people. Mm-hmm. And and so you might be like, man, I'm going to do this piece of music. I'm going to make this piece of furniture and it's going to make them feel this way. And they go, eh, or, right, Or how could you? Sometimes people are offended. I right. mean... You know things like that. Maybe that doesn't happen in furniture as much. In music, oh, it certainly more than you does. <laughs> <laughs> more um, But I think that when, when when thinking about intention, at some point you have to let go of that intention and realize that it's up to the whoever you're interacting with to let it be theirs. Then, and I guess I am one. I wonder for you: does your intent of the piece always end up being the most important part when it's done?
0: No. The question is is whether or not i think it's a successful design okay um and so my intention either got translated into the piece or or not and sometimes it didn't and so that that's that's the only important thing
1: i think that's where i struggle a little bit more because to me it a piece of music moves you or it doesn't it's there really isn't that in between space and and it's like if my kids or my audience doesn't get it and they don't buy it then that just crushes you know there's there have been times when i've put together a program i spend a lot of time programming and i've thought about exactly how each piece and the text works together and i'm telling i'm telling a story you know and it's it's all there and then you present it and the kids just don't get it mm. and you you or the audience and the ki- the kids get it and we just sell it man and then everyone's like I've had this happen before, and someone who's adjudicating is like, "Not really sure why you put that piece there," and that was kind of backwards. You should have done this, and I don't think that piece fits with your. And it's like, what? You (laughs) missed the whole point. Like, and it just crushes you. Yeah, yeah. I don't.
0: I don't think we have that. that, Those same issues building furniture. Thankfully, uh, we don't have the immediacy of of an audience or a or a. Well, sometimes we have juries, but not at that same crushing
1: emotional level. It can be. Well, the, the OSA state choir competition can be a brutal thing. Yeah.
0: <laughs> do you have any closing comments, or we'll open this up to questions or comments? Another question from the audience was, how does improvisation or inspiration in the moment uh, affect
1: your work? What I do, process, or what, how things work? You have to be totally open to changing your plans all the time um, within the framework. Uh, During over the course of a rehearsal, I might have an idea of how how a piece is going to work. I know exactly how everything, and then we get it in there, and I'm like, nope, we're going to do that. Or I realize that I need to switch some voices over somewhere else, or I need to take a section faster or slower, or sometimes I rewrite pieces. Sorry, composers. But sometimes I'm like, I don't like that. You're going to, no, sing those notes here and change that and do that, and... And it's all based on the kids I have in the choir and the situation. I would imagine that things like that would probably come up with furniture when you're making something and all of a sudden the material you have changes its ideas, and you have to go, oh, there's a knot there, well, I'm going to... Well, mostly what it does is it
0: it improves my vocabulary. (laughs) (laughs) So that I can express how I'm feeling in new and creative ways. (laughs) I don't like to improvise when I'm building furniture. I don't like surprises. And generally I find if I, oh, you know, I'm I'm almost done with the piece. Let's carve a little something here. It's irrevocable. It's not like I can erase that and try it again. I don't get a second shot at it. No. And so. You don't
1: get rehearsals.
0: Yeah, I don't have, there's no rehearsal time. So what I do instead of rehearsals is a mock-up or a prototype or, you know, I do a practice sample. I do a, a finished sample or a paint sample. Carve that and then say, yeah, that works. Another question. How do you deal with failure? How do you respond to failure?
1: Drink helps. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that, but that's definitely true. <laughs> Music, I'm, furniture, pretty a much. A gin same. martini solves a lot. <laughs> um, uh, no, you know what? Evaluate what worked, what didn't. Why did it fail? Was it your fault or was it the material's fault? Sometimes it's not your fault, I think. Um, Rarely. But sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) I think it's a little convenient, John. Okay, fine. um, I don't know. Uh, Just pick it up and do it again.
0: Try again. It's a failure. Yeah. And as a failure, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to learn something. So I designed a piece one time because I had a board, and if I glued it you know cut it in two and glued it together it was going to be this tall and so i made a blanket chest out of it and every time i look at it i go that's dumb it's just a dumb shape it's a dumb form there are several factors at at play um and 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 once you understand who the worst critic is it becomes a whole lot easier so number one when when the whatever that event is occurs leave the studio leave the studio, walk around the block, and the size of the problem will shrink to its normal size. Because at the moment, it's huge, and it takes over all the available oxygen. It's huge. It's insurmountable, and you're an idiot. I'm an idiot. But if you recognize that there's usually a way out, as long as you don't point it out to anyone, you're the only one who's going to know. You're the only one who's going to know that drawer broke. So that's really that's really it. And And recognizing that, what my book is about is about that understanding that forgiveness is the most important tool, being able to forgive yourself for making that mistake. A failure in design is, is an opportunity, and that's why you build all these pieces so that you can walk around them and say, didn't work, good. I mean, not, I, mean <laughs> I was hoping it would work, but it didn't work, and so now I got to figure out you know, how to make that better, which is why front-end loading the design process is so important. You spend so much time on mock-ups and models and stuff so that at the end, after all those weeks of work, you can look at it and go, pretty close. You know, I didn't nail it, but I got pretty damn close, and that's a good feeling. But that, that feeling that you're describing, that sucks.
1: I think you got to think about the amount of time that you're putting into it, too. Yeah. and Especially if you have deadlines. That makes things easier. Um, I or mean, harder, <laughs> or well, well, or harder, depending. But like for me, the metrics I have are, it's like, well, if I have a concert date, then that's obvious, right? But uh, sometimes you overreach. Sometimes you overreach, and you have an idea, and you think this is going to be the best idea ever. And as you start getting into it, if it doesn't feel right, it's not going to turn out right. I mean, there's, I think there's a difference between something that feels difficult and something that doesn't feel right. And I get that sense sometimes when I'll put together a program. And I'll, I'll get into the room and I'll start working with the kids. And they're just, it's not clicking. And the things that I thought were going to be easy become difficult. And eventually you just, hopefully sooner rather than later, you realize, maybe not today. And I've definitely had programs or pieces that I've programmed. And then quickly, very thankfully, quickly been like, never mind. I'm going to take that back. Mm-hmm. And then when I was ready and realizing that it wasn't necessarily that the kids weren't ready. It's that I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready to get there yet. In fact, I just did a piece this year that I've wanted to conduct for four years, and I've workshop teased it here and there, but always known I'm not ready for that yet. I think what's
0: interesting about what you just said is how much feeling is a part of it. And responding, not on an intellectual level. It's not about your artist statement about the piece. It's about how you respond to it. When you walk back into the room, you haven't seen it in a day you had to leave and you came back and you looked at it and said oh i can do this or oh it's garbage and i have to blow it up but that that gut feeling is a huge part of the process for me and i'm sure it sounds like it is it is for, it you. Is for
1: me and i and i i mean i i go to lots of conventions and work with other directors and right. um, I, man, it, there's nothing more painful than watching someone conducting a choir or rehearsing a choir on something that you know they're just not going to get mm. cuz it's not a good if they don't have the right intention. I mean, they want it to happen, but you just you can see it and you can watch it in live time and you're like, that choir is never going to get what mm. this person is trying to do. Mm. And it's just you just it's like why don't just no, stop. Start over. Go in a different direction. But if you can't just tell that to someone, they have to come yeah. to that discovery for themselves. It's tough being, uh, being a designer in this very
0: right brain world of, of engineering that we do, the engineering all these pieces, and then having to switch over to this creative side because it's so f- scary over there for us. And, uh, and how to access that is, uh, is, is tough. You have to practice it. We have to spend so much time building this stuff and practicing those skills that it's hard to switch over to uh, to practice that stuff, but I, I think it comes back to understanding what it is you like and why do you like it and it doesn't matter what you study and what your what your art is or your your medium. you go and study the the people who are good at it and then figure out how to what responds to you, what resonates with you and uh, if you can figure that out, that's huge. One final question came from one of my mastery students who said that in his design education, unpacking a design package from a particular designer was uh, a fascinating process and one that he felt uh, engaged in. He asked John, could you describe when you approach a composer for the first time the detective process you go through and how that's different when you're working with the chorus later on.
1: Yeah, okay. It, it, so there's, there's two different approaches, I would say, and, uh, and a lot of it has to do with context. Um, if I'm looking at a piece of music that has basically already been vetted by time, right, say something that's 300 years old, that be, that's a lot easier because people have done a lot of that work already. And and when I'm approaching, say say a modern piece, uh, something by a newer composer, what I'm listening for is is actually is 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 the composer's content intent obvious or at least presented in a way that is very accessible. Um, I go on, I listen to their other works to try and figure out kind of where they're going. Is this a one off or is this something that they is there a method to their compositional strategy? Um, I relate it to the other composers that I know and say, are they just rewriting other pieces? Because that happens a lot. You know, someone does write something groundbreaking, and then everybody else just kind of writes kind of the same thing over and over, and it's not really that new. I have to say, honestly, a lot of it is a gut feeling. If the if a piece of music inspires me and like reaches me in this in a, in a, in that moment, then all of a sudden. I'm I'm drawn to it and then I go to the score and I look at how it's composed and I look at the similarities between the parts and where the vocal lines lie and I interpret the text and I read the text out loud and over and over to see why did the composer make specific choices about harmonies or rhythms within that text like for example I'm doing a piece this year called The Campers at Kitty Hawk and it's all and Jamie's heard this and it's all about the birth of human flight and the Wright Brothers Mm -hmm. and it's taken from the telegram that the brothers sent to their father after they figured out how to fly. Hmm. And that's the text. And then it's a bunch of newspaper clippings, right? So the source material is excellent right there. And then the whole piece is written in this way to sound as if it's a telegram, right? It's a da 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 so for me, that clearly has a strong intent, but also the form of the piece, the structure of it is incredibly methodical. So then I'm bought in, right? Now I'm in. And then when you to translate it to students, it depends. Sometimes you can just give stuff to people and they'll go and they'll get it. But sometimes like that piece, it was so hard I had to tell them, sometimes you make stuff up too. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Sometimes you're like, hey, by the way, this is the hardest piece I've ever done in my entire life. So are you guys up for the challenge too? You know, that inspires people. Um, a little fabling here and there. <laughs> but honestly, I think, honestly, just being being completely honest with how it affects me. I, I cry in class a lot. Um, and when, when the kids do something that moves me, I let them know. And I'm very open with that. And when something sounds bad, I let them know. <laughs> you know, conversely. Like, that just wasn't good. Different pieces are approached differently. Clearly, I do need to do more weeping. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. Well, (laughs) I mean, again, though, with with uh, with the older music, a lot of it is uh, like I said, a lot of it is religious in nature. And so that's a really difficult thing to communicate to students as we especially in Portland. You know, we are the city of the unchurched. Right. um, But getting kids to sing about, you know, an Ovo somnus, which is the, the Christ on the cross bleeding to death, talking to the people in front of him. I mean, That music has clear intent behind it, and to get the kids to recognize what that means. I'm not religious in any way. I was raised without any religious affiliation, but I can understand that, holy shit, like this is powerful to millions and millions and billions of people who have come before me, and that's important. And so I think if you really are just honest with the students about that this might not be true in a liturgical sense to you, But we've all been in a place in our life of utmost sadness and sacrifice, right? Or know someone who has. And so how do we, you know, find your own intention to it? I don't know if that answers your question.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, John. Thank you, Gary. This has been great. This is great fun. We're going to keep talking and have a beer. There's some popcorn and stuff, so... Thanks, everyone, for coming. That's great. Well, that was our design open house, June of 2019, with John Eisenman and myself. It was great fun to talk about intention. Please check out the website, northwestwoodworking.com. Thanks very much for listening to our podcast. Appreciate it. Take care.